Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to Trumpets Time by Mist Apex. I'm Matt Trumpets, and thanks for joining me. This week's show is called The Fine Print. We will be discussing all the minutiae and arcana of the 2018 regs, along with any other flotsam or jetsam we stumble across. And to help me out, I have none other than Matthew, Summers F1 Summerfeld, to join me. Hey Summers, how's it going? It's good here, Matt, apart from the technical issues at my end, but uh, yeah, it's, it's all good. What technical issues? What are you talking about? I mean, everything has been perfect as far as Spanners knows, right? Yeah, we're just surfing past those issues. Indeed. Well, it's at this point that I'm going to need to remind our listeners and viewers that this show is an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. The show is safe for work. We are keeping it clean here so you can play this with the kids in the background or at work. And let me say hello to the live stream. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to see this in uh, our, our, our own little testing session, I suppose, as it were. And if you're looking for us, of course, just Google uh, Missed Apex live stream YouTube and you will find us or go to MissedApexPodcast.com where all of the links live all of the time. So shall we talk about some Formula One summers? It sounds like a very good plan to me. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm pretty excited. So there have been a couple of things we've seen. Um, I, I know that we have seen the, um, we've seen the arrow screen on, on the IndyCar, and that got a lot of people very excited. I know that, uh, again, we're, we're talking about, um, well, I don't know. You told me about Grand Prix Driver. I think we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But what I'd really like to do is ask you, where would you like to begin? Well, I, I think we should kick things off with the halo going into next year because it's obviously it's one of the biggest changes that everybody's been talking about um, from a, both an aesthetic point of view and obviously the, the problems that it's caused the teams going into, into this year. All right, then. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at that. You've done us up a rather nice drawing. So tell us a little bit about the halo and what's going on with it this year. Okay, so the biggest issue that we, we're coming across at the moment is the teams are complaining about the weight issue of the halo um, in terms of the fact that there's only an additional seven kilograms been added to the technical regulations, which unfortunately only deals with the titanium element that's been added. And obviously, we also have to think about the additional installation bulk that goes with it. So it's making life difficult for the teams to get to the minimum weight. And as we know, that then affects the bigger drivers um, because they have to deal with that uh, problem that they won't be able to run ballast. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, a problem for both the teams and the drivers and perhaps something that needs looking in for, into for 2019. Right. So we've had a brief look at the Mercedes Halo solution. Uh, tell us a little bit about what sets that apart in, in your eyes, at least as we've seen so far. 
Well, the Mercedes haven't actually shown their their full blown halo. This is the thing with the halo. Um, looking forward to next year, we will or this year, should I say, this year coming, um, we will see a lot of the teams working with what's called a, a fairing that will be able to be put across the the halo itself. Now, originally, the the regulation for that allowed a twenty millimeter fairing to be added to a certain surface of the halo and that was to help with streamlining in order that obviously each of the teams can mitigate the aerodynamic issues that's being caused but as we've already seen at the last test um, of last season teams like mclaren um, haas and torosso have already shown their hand in that respect uh, they've started to add some aerodynamic components to this uh, to to the halo, um, taking up this twenty millimeters of the fairing, but obviously it comes with um, its own aerodynamic uh, aerodynamic design. So we're going to see each of the teams sort of adapting these aerodynamic devices on their their halos. Okay, and of of the ones that you've seen so far, uh, in, and is this similar in a way to some of the things that we've seen with IndyCar? Um, and their initial testing of the aero screen, a lot of it is going to just simply be aimed at obviating the airflow issues into the airbox and also around the cockpit in general. Okay, so yeah, I mean, basically, if we look at the devices that have been used so far, um, they're, they're pretty um, uncomplicated, let's put it so far, um, but they're all looking to achieve the same sort of thing. What we have to think about is in terms of the aero moving around that part of the car, it, we're putting a rather blunt device in front of the driver. And so that has an impact on how the airflow moves around that part of the chassis, um, around the airbox and towards the rear wing. So McLaren have used sort of a triple hooped design on um, in Abu Dhabi in order to try to mitigate that problem and move the airflow where they want it. And as I say, I think we'll we'll sort of, in the initial stages of 2018, start to see these designs um, differentiate between the, the teams. But I think we'll see it converge throughout the season towards a more defined route where everybody kind of realises what is the best actual route to take with it. It's very much how we see other aero solutions come about. One team will, will find what is the de facto number one solution and everybody else then will converge on that. Yeah, and we've got a couple of quick questions from the chat room specifically about the, um, specifically about the Halo. And okay. I think what they mostly wanted to know is um, what uh, are, are cameras going to be on the Halo and are there going to be um, Halo blinkers um, added to their visors to stop them complaining throughout the whole season about the Halo. Ha ha. Blackout 19 going for comment of the week. Huh. But but are, where are the cameras going to go on the Halo was a serious question. There's no actual specification as yet, not that one that I've seen. So obviously the uh, Formula One management will change the positions of the cameras because the camera position that was currently in place on the airbox was rather cumbersome when you looked at it with looking down above above the halo. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine that there will be some changes in that respect. But I don't think unless they're actually going to mount the camera within the titanium structure, that there's actually a possibility of adding cameras to the structure um, just purely because it's going to then have another impact on the airflow around it which, as we've already talked about just now, is quite a difficult problem uh, because the teams are trying to mitigate those issues, um, primarily in terms of the airbox, but also um, sort of the, the, the flow to the rear wing. Right. We have another question uh, from James Fennell, who says that uh, Stephen Little, a chief aerodynamicist at Renault, said that he feels that the halo is going to be an area of much research this year as they're allowed this fairing. And now you already referenced this briefly, but how much advantage do you think the teams will ultimately be able to gain or that the, the optimum solution? I mean, how much, how much room is there with this thing now attached to the car to, to really differentiate yourself from your competitors? Are we talking thousands, hundreds, or tenths here? I would imagine there's tenths in, in pocket compared from, say, the, the least funded teams to the most well-funded teams. As I mentioned when we've spoken about the Halo many, many times before, in my opinion, you would have had a technical working group set up a long time ago to establish how you would deal with this particular problem because you're adding a very large component to the car. Um, and you want to understand how that is going to impact everything that's happening with the car. You know, it's very easy to see how something might react 
in, in, a, in a straight line. But obviously, when you add your into that, and we're also talking about a surface that is very curved, then, you know, we, we might have issues that, um, say, some of the smaller funded teams might not initially think of. So, yeah, I do think that there might be temps in pocket. Um, but as I say, you, it will be an area of um, convergence throughout the season towards what ultimately be, would be the defining package. Okay. So let's do now. Um, I, I know I saw some of the visor cam, ish, uh, visor cam video from Scott Dixon's run with the arrow screen. And I, I know that a lot of people have been paying a lot of attention to it because this seemed to be sort of a solution that Red Bull had put forward, at least until Vettel, Vettel had an issue with whatever version he happened to run on his Ferrari that day. It made him feel dizzy. Uh, this is not something that Dixon complained about when he ran the arrow screen, but he did, he did, he was very clear that everybody should run with it to make sure because, you know, different people are different. But let's, let's have a quick, um, let's have a quick chat about the arrow screen and some of the uh, differences there. Okay, so firstly, the, the, the IndyCar solution is a very aesthetically pleasing solution when you compare it to the Halo. And, and so obviously you're going to have um, fans suggest that Formula One should adopt this as rapidly as possible. Um, however, I think there's a bit of... Um, historics behind the way in which that looks because the IndyCar of this year to me very much um, sort of harks back to the McLaren MP44 especially with the aero screen attached to it or what they're calling calling a windscreen deflector um, if you just compare the two in terms of the way that the the front wing end plate looks um, as well you know it looks very much like a, a historic f1 car to me in certain respects so I think that there might be a bit of an element to that yeah but Dixon's um, comment to, that stood out to me was, it is like putting on a new pair of glasses. So in other words, you know, it's, it, he can notice the difference. He does know it's there, but it's not too problematic that he can't drive around the problem that's being created by that, that screen in front of him. Well, and I, sorry, Matt. No, please go ahead. Uh, I, I think it's important to realise that the difference between the IndyCar in terms of the chassis, the driving position, is very different to what we have in Formula One and other sin single-seater series um, that are going to adopt the halo as well, sort of Formula E and um, F2. So the way in which that the their screen works compared to the halo is also very different um, and obviously gives a different um visual effects of the driver so the way that we had the problem with Sebastian Vettel when he tested uh, the shield at Silverstone he didn't test the aero screen he tested the shield uh, which was another FIA solution that they were testing at the time um, I think he's predominantly down to the way that Formula One's chassis um, works with that particular type of screen um, so as I've said again in the past I think what we have now is a very first iteration of a, a cockpit protection um, scheme. And what we might see in the future is something very different. And it may be a canopy. It might be a quarter canopy like we're seeing in, in IndyCar. Um, but I think it needs to be done in line with changes elsewhere around the cockpit, just as IndyCar have done this time around with their styling cues, etc., for for their 2018 car. Yeah, and it also strikes me very much that one of the comments from the um, from the safety guy was that they were simply they were moving on to test it now with an air cannon and see exactly what what it, what it was capable at that size and and build of handling. And it's almost uh, I I know you mentioned this, but it, to me it's almost horses for courses. It, it seems that FIA very much wanted something that above all else would prevent a tire from contacting a head. This seemed to be their, this is the thing it must do. And they built the thing, and it will absolutely do that. But what it won't do is deal with uh, smaller pieces of debris, where it seems like IndyCar has gone almost exactly the opposite route. The, the driver's head is almost entirely protected, um, unless you, you're extremely unfortunate and have something land directly on top of you, or boomerang on top of you. That, that it's going to be very protective of the smaller types of debris that, that the drivers would encounter. And so they're really almost entirely different solutions for different purposes at this point. 
Yeah, they've kind of digressed into different formats. And I feel that IndyCar may have taken perhaps some of the, the aesthetic problems that the Halo has brought up into account when they've designed their solution. What might be interesting to a lot of people as well is, is that they've worked with PPG or Aerospace for, for their design. And obviously they're instrumental in the design of aircraft uh, components like cockpit um, sh- uh, cockpit glass and um cabin windows so you know they're working with a, a team of people that are, are in that kind of industry and can deal with the the type of situations that that uh, motorsport would also encounter um so yeah it's it's an interesting solution um and i think it will be something ultimately that formula one will look to adapt to but as i've said i think it's something that they may have to look at in the future when they make larger chassis changes in order to adapt a sort of screened version. Yeah, and we have another question sort of vaguely related, which is when or if are we going to see the same kind of visor view that we get from IndyCar? And for me, one of the interesting things that we never really heard about the Vettel version versus what we did here from the IndyCar version is that the um, is the actual composition of the aero screen? Because I, I know in doing a little bit of preliminary research back when Vettel ran it, there's two entirely different um, types of compounds that they use, and the amount of distortion and the amount of thickness required is, and the resulting weight is vastly different amongst them. Yeah, I mean, according to uh, Jeff Horton, who's the director of safety and engineering in, in IndyCar, he mentions that the product that PPG Aerospace were using was OptiCore. Now, you can obviously go out and Google search that. There's plenty of data out there to to absorb and to, to understand. Um, most of it, obviously, about aerospace um, technology in terms of uh, cockpits and um, cabin windows. But, you know, you can kind of decipher between the lines what they're talking about um, and how that would have an impact on on IndyCar. Now, if you've seen the actual IndyCar deflector, it is quite a thick material, whereas the one that was run, the Shield and the aero screen that Red Bull ran. So we've got the Shield that Ferrari ran and kind of dismissed. And we also saw um, Red Bull run their version of the aero screen for a little while as well. They were much thinner polycarbonate versions. So you potentially are going to get more distortion because of the way in which the, uh, the, you have glare and reflection, etc. So, you know, we're talking about perhaps having the aerospace side of things for the IndyCar um deflector as, as assisted here in this particular design from a practical point of view having said that you know the halo is here and i don't see a, a major problem with it at the end of the day it is a safety device and that is one of the utmost uh importances is to keep the driver safe so you know yes it's a little ugly but i think after a certain period of time we will just forget it's there um you know, you look at the new Formula E car, for argument's sake, the season five car with the halo attached and it looks part of the design. So I think it's just something that we will inevitably get used to a bit like step noses. Um, speak for yourself on that one. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, although the halo has been very, very controversial and I think very much so because it affected the basic aesthetics of the car. The fact of the matter is, if you look at what the teams are all complaining about, they're complaining about something entirely different, and that is going to be the uh, power units and the only three for one extra race that they're all going to be faced with next year. So the question is, who's going to lose this game of three-card power unit first, Renault or Honda? Because we're pretty sure it's not going to be Mercedes, correct? Pretty much, yeah, based on last year's utilisation. But I think that there's something that we really need to cover first off, and that's that obviously everybody is talking about only having three power units for next year. However, obviously a power unit is made up of several elements. Uh, We have the engine, the turbocharger, MGUH, MGUK, control electronics and the energy store. Now, problematically, yes, we only have three of the, three of those elements for a lot of them, but we only have two MGUKs, two energy stores and two lots of control electronics, which puts m- even more focus on the reliability of those components. And obviously, as soon as you then change those elements, you're then looking at more penalties. So from a, from an historical point of view, I think, you know, the likes of Honda and Renault really have to step their game up, um, especially as 
there will only have two of them to last all of the all of the races, which, as you mentioned, Matt, has gone up by a race. We've got 21 next year. Yes, and I think we're all excited to see all 21 of them. Uh, for me, though, the end of the season, if the end of the season told a story, it's that Honda had focused very much on reliability at the end of the season, and Renault had absolutely not focused on it. Yeah, it was a bit of a turnaround, wasn't it? Both of them decided to go off in separate directions, and Honda seemed to get um, on top of their their issues um, with the, the reliability side of things. And we did start to see them use less units, which obviously then meant le- less penalty places on the grid. Um, obviously, another situation that's been slightly sorted out next year, but we still have some kind of penalties where um, obviously everybody goes to the back of the grid and then forms up forward. So that might become a bit more complicated for people to understand at, at, in the beginning, um, especially when you've got the likes of Honda that could be blowing up a lot of engines to start with. Um, it, it all depends, I think, for Honda, how they work in combination with Toro Rosso. Um, we've seen the destructive um, side of things with Honda and the McLaren relationship, and so it will be very, it will be key for Toro Rosso to be able to communicate well with with their new partner. It will be, uh, but what we've seen, who we've seen complaining most, has been Christian Horner. And again, you know, for me, the end of last season was somewhat concerning. If you had a Renault power unit, uh, and maybe that's that's part of what's on his mind. Yeah, I mean, you kind of think about McLaren in this situation as well, jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, you know, they're jumping out from from the Honda um, into a Renault that isn't exactly the most reliable power unit on the on the grid in the first place. But, you know, everybody has to make gains. And as Mercedes have led the way for such a long time, there there has to become a point where others start to make inroads in towards their advantage so i do see that there might be some kind of uh merging between one another um in terms of the the, the performance element and also reliability um but the, the biggest issue for red bull is perhaps that they um have a problem with losing their supply of renault next season as well um i believe their contract is up at the end of 2018 and um obviously they only really have one place to go and that's with their their sister team supplier, Honda. That might obviously might have a, an impact on the way in which that uh, Renault supply data, etc., to to Red Bull uh, towards the end of like Nick this season coming. So we might see Red Bull really come out the blocks and attack um, Ferrari and Mercedes. But are they going to be able to sustain an attack if they aren't continued to give? be given a good supply by Renault and also the data that they need to, to go with it if they're terminating their contract and moving on to what they see as green greener pastures. So this then would be very similar to the uh, McLaren-Mercedes situation that we saw when they when they finally cut Mercedes loose as an engine supplier. Yeah, there's, there's a dissemination of, of information. Basically, you, you start to lose... Um, your connection to the the power unit supplier, they start to cut you off in effect. Um, So it'll be difficult for Renault because, you know, they they really want to supply McLaren as as a favourite to to take the fight to, say, Red Bull. And they also have their own ambitions as a works team to be able to make that leap up the grid as well. It'll be a fascinating um, season this year to see how that all unfolds with the Renault supply and how those teams can approach Force India, who've kind of become de facto number fourth team um, with obviously less budget. Much less budget. And it it will be interesting as well because uh, McLaren have made all the noises about wanting to contend with Red Bull. They'll now have the same power unit. Uh, But as we know that as equal as the manufacturers try and make it, some teams are more equal than other teams, aren't they? Yeah, well, there's there's always going to be that situation, isn't there, unfortunately? And, and I don't think McLaren have very far to hide this year um, based on their um, predictions in the past of having such a fantastic chassis um, compared to their opposition. Now they've suddenly got a Renault power unit, you would expect them to be fighting up there with the Red Bulls. I don't see them on, on in the same level uh, as those guys to start with. But I do feel that if McLaren can get things right... Um, then there's no reason why we can't see them take it to take it to the likes of Red Bull 
and Force India and that kind of area in in the pack. Okay, so let's talk about where where are some of the margins that teams like Red Bull are going to be looking to make a difference. What what loopholes have they already found? What do we know is uh, low hanging fruit for those who have done their homework with the technical regulations? Well, as we know. This is a very early stage in this particular regulation set. So 2017 saw the proliferation of a huge amount of area in front of the side pods uh, by teams using barge boards and pre-barge boards and boomerangs and all sorts of devices to move airflow around the front of the car. Um, The leading edge of the floor is also a a particular sensitive area and we've seen teams using strakes on the leading edge to try and control vortices that that run along the the front edge of the the floor. Um, But these are all known quantities and obviously all of the teams look at one another and and try to understand these um, design aspects as, as they are as much as they're obviously trying to find their own performance advantages, they're, they're looking at other teams to to try to gain things. In terms of the changes that have come into the sport this year on an aerodynamic point of view, um, we've obviously lost shark fins, um, which a lot of, of the fans seem to, to hate for some particular reason. I didn't have a, a particular reason to hate the shark fins. I, I thought they looked particularly nice. Um, some of them did look a bit like a slab on the side, but I think if you'd have just controlled how much of that shark fin could be used then I I think it could have been quite nice Um, they've also attempted to ban the t-wing however there is a small slot that is available for use Um, so the t-wing although it may appear to have gone could actually still appear Um, if you remember back to last season Williams used a lower tier wing um, down around the exhaust area. And that's the sort of area that's been left free within the regulations for, for teams to exploit. Um, which, again, it may not provide a huge amount of performance, but it's a box area that teams will be able to to investigate and, and try and get performance from. So we may see some interesting solutions crop up there, at least in testing, um, just, to, just to see what um, performance can be gained. And that that will again be probably someplace where we see the where we see the leading teams, uh, the teams with the most budget, uh, hopping into that hole the earliest. Yeah, I mean, as I say, the the perhaps the least funded teams last year had those solutions. So Sauber and Williams both ran with lower lower T wings, um, but they were obviously trying to make up performance that they couldn't otherwise find elsewhere. So now the other teams may jump on that bandwagon because that you know they've lost a shark fin and the upper t-wing so it now may become on vogue to have the the lower t-wing uh, amongst the the leading teams i'm not saying it's a solution that everybody will adopt but i am saying that it is a possibility um also the monkey seat was thought to have disappeared uh, for this year coming but all that's actually happened is is that the fia have reined in what can actually be done with a monkey seat because they didn't like the way in which that the exhaust was be, being used to manipulate that that plume and interact with the rear wing, um, sort of a blowing effect like we had with the, the blown diffusers, and they're, they're trying to limit that scope. So what they've done is they've lengthened the exhaust um, and they've stopped the use of monkey seats a little further back, a bit like the one that we saw Ferrari use last year. So that will limit the amount of performance that can be gained from, from that area of the car. All right, and we just had a quick look, if you're on the live stream, at the Mercedes monkey seat and T-Wing. And it's good to know that they will be uh, reinvented afresh for, for, the, for the coming season, uh, even though I think we were all hoping that they'll be maybe, what, a bit more robust than the previous iterations. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another thing. Obviously, the FIA do have scope to be able to add flex tests onto certain components. So they did so with the upper T-wings last year. And I, I would assume that if this becomes an area of um, performance that everybody's looking to jump onto, that, that um, obviously um, the, the, t- the FIA will start to, to impose some, some late regulatory um, muscle to it. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, one thing, one, one category of performance that is always relevant and we are at liberty to discuss as long as we like, and that's going to be tires. Uh, Pirelli has thrown an extra set into the lineup, but it's more than just that, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, we can talk about it as much as we like because there's no spanners. Oh, it's great. So he, he can't tell us off for talking tyres. And I think both of us will probably get messages in a minute. Um, yeah, but basically they're thrown in two new tyres um, to expand the range and obviously try to improve the amount of strategy that's in play. But what they're also doing is changing the compounds so that we have more degradation. Um, so we're heading back towards sort of more strategic, more two, two and three stop races. Um, so what we've got um, for next year is the Hypersoft, which will be a pink tyre. And I'm sure Force India will really like that one. Um, and they've added the super hard, which means we've now got the super hard running with the orange banding instead of the hard. And they've introduced a blue tire into the range, which looks freakishly similar to the wet weather color, um, which is going to be the hard tire. So I'm a bit confused with the way in which they've added a blue tire into the range, because that might be a bit confusing for the the fans. Everybody suddenly thinks that somebody's jumped onto a wet weather tire when it's still sunny outside. Um, and yeah, I think we might get a bit more um, varied strategy going into, into 2018, just because of the extra degradation. And I'm sure that we will. Uh, the question becomes, though, how how difficult will it be for the engineers to get on top of these tires because their fundamental characteristics have also changed somewhat? Yeah, the, obviously, this is an engineering sport at the end of the day, and finding those smaller minutiae is where the engineers are, are really looking to, to get, make gains. And, and where you make those gains is in the early season testing at Barcelona. Um, the more laps that you can get under your belt, the better. And so the Mercedes teams are obviously going to be pumping in the laps a, a, as frequently as possible. Um, I'm, I imagine they'll be stacking up thousands come the end of testing. Um, and obviously the Ferraris as well. But, you know, it's it's back down to how, how do you make that deficit up for the likes of the Renault and the Honda-powered teams that may be struggling with in terms of reliability. Um, remember, we can only have one of the cars circling for testing at any one time. So, you know, it could be difficult for, for those guys in terms of mileage and, and understanding the, the minutiae of the tyres. Well, I tell you what, Blackout 19 seems to have forgotten that he is ineligible for comment of the week because, again, he's up with Pirelli, Taste the Rainbow. <laughs> but yes. I, I do... I do um, before we move on, one of the things that I think we've seen from a strategic point of view is Pirelli being very conservative with tire choice. And it hasn't offered, um, especially those starting outside of the top 10, any opportunity to change tire strategies and really steal an advantage. And I, I think that's because the construction itself had been because the construction itself had been so very, very conservative. With this widened range, do you expect Pirelli to make uh, bolder choices with more steps in between tires so that teams that qualify on the softest tire aren't going to be able to run half a race and then just change? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
change them for the next softest step. Yeah, I mean, that that's always the biggest problem. But now having seven compounds to choose from, you would expect that there to be bigger steps between them at each race. However, looking through the list of tyres for the, the, the first four races, that doesn't necessarily tend to be the case. I'm looking at Australia running the ultra, the super soft and the soft. And in Bahrain, we've got the super soft, the soft and the medium medium soft ultra in china and ultra super and soft in azerbaijan so we're basically selecting three tire compounds that are cl- the closest together with the exception of china um you know it's it doesn't smack me is that they are trying to invert the way in which teams operate their strategy um my biggest issue and i know that you've been um, pumping this one as well in the past Matt is that you know I would rather them not be mandated to take a stop and if you could take a, a hard tyre t- all the way through the races of Force India and do competitive lap times because of it then they should be allowed that opportunity um, I, I think in order to get the sort of exciting races that we want there needs to be a bit of a shake up in terms of the way in which the the tires are are operated um and i'm hoping that as you say they they do after azerbaijan start to open up the the difference between each compound yeah and i think you make a very good point uh with regards to the uh mandated pit stops uh if you could run a hard tire to the end of the race, then that is the equivalent of offering uh, wider selections between tires because teams at the back uh, and teams with less ultimate pace in their car can there could then make up for it by running steadier lap and using their tires more carefully. Because that's, uh, I mean, we've seen the average pit stop run around 20 or 25 seconds. That's over that that's not an insignificant amount of pace per lap and that would bring some of the back markers or some of the midfield really into much closer um, striking distance and if they're out there and don't stop it would also mean perhaps they are playing defense and the faster teams and the manufacturers would have to play offense to get by them for the podium positions at the end of the race which i don't know do you think that might be exciting i think so personally and i've played enough uh, management formula one management games enough sort of strategy games to understand that you know you you make more strategy options open and more people will try different routes so um, the problem is is that you get to a point of convergence where everybody understands everything so so very easily so that so they all run the same options so they're all pitting very much on the same lap they're all able to make the same sort of pit stop time so we're in between two to two and a half second pit stops um and that's another area where i think there might need to be some changes from from the fia and liberty in the future in terms of the amount of personnel that are available at a pit stop um, to try and increase the amount of time that, that the car is stationary for. Um, we've got to a point now where there's virtually never a mistake in a pit stop. Um, and when there is, it doesn't seem to take them very long to be able to get it sorted out. So, um, yes, I'm all for, for quick pit stops, etc. But, you know, adding that kind of element to it might change the way in which the, the racing appears. Yeah, well, that would be sort of taking a leaf out of the IMSA WEC book, or even at Bathurst, which I watched recently, they only let so many people over. And then you have the mad scramble with the with the two people trying to take the tires off and put them on. Visually, it's more exciting to watch that happen. Uh, frankly, the Formula One pit stops now happen so quickly that, that only if you go back and watch them in slow motion uh, are they exciting to watch. Otherwise, it's stop, go. And, and yeah, it's a bit of blink and miss it, isn't it, unfortunately? Yeah, very much. Well, I, I tell you what, you had mentioned to me, speaking of things that are exciting, uh, that you've been doing a, a bit of binging on, on Amazon here. So, so tell us about what you've been watching and what you've learned, because I think, to me, uh, this, is, this is an exciting and interesting and new direction for Formula One, but I could see other teams going this way if this is successful. Yeah, so so basically on Amazon at the moment, or Amazon Prime, you've got a series that has come about um, in combination with McLaren. Um, it's called Grand Prix Driver, and I've been able to sit and binge watch all four episodes in one evening as Mrs. Uh, Summers is away um, for work. So 
there was nobody to harass me um, and I could sit and watch it undisturbed. Um, it's not for the hardcore fan. It's not for a hardcore F1 fan uh, because I think a lot of what is shown in there is stuff that we would already know. Um, it's sort of semi-staged, um, but there are some extremely interesting elements to the documentary. And what I think stands out the most is that it started off as one particular type of documentary where they were going to follow the team's exploits as they changed from sort of the Ron Dennis era into this new organization that had Zach Brown on the commercial side of things and Jonathan Neal on the chassis side of things with Eric Boulier doing the racing division. And it kind of disappeared from down, down the trail into, ah, we now know we have a problem with Honda that we thought was going to be solved and we need to get out of this problem and we need to find a new partner. So as you go through the four episodes, you suddenly start to realize that, you know, something's not quite right with uh, McLaren and their Honda partnership and that, um, yeah, it's, it's going to need a transition of partnerships. Um, and it, in, a, in parts of the documentary, it's quite interesting to see the reaction of what's going on between um, McLaren and Honda um, in terms of it, it's not quite staged. You can tell that this is happening for real and it's live uh, and they've been quite candid to allow the footage out. And uh, of that, I mean, what did you glean or what did you take away? Because, boy, do people like to argue whose fault is this when it comes to the Honda power unit? And when it comes to McLaren chassis design, and now you've seen some of it, and, and I get that it's geared more towards introducing people to the sport and covering the drama behind it than, than the nuts and bolts that we're discussing today. But, but did you have any takeaways from that? Yeah, and as I say, I think it's more of a gateway drug, this this particular documentary. It's going to allow access to, to fans that don't necessarily understand how the inner workings of Formula One operates. Um, but on the, on the other side, I, I see how, you know, the, the breakdown in rela relationship with Honda occurred because, you know, the I don't want to give too much away, but when the Honda power unit arrives and it doesn't fit in the chassis and they have to make ad hoc changes to be able to, to get to uh, a shakedown and they don't make the shakedown because of other problems that are, are then snowballing out of their control. So, you know, it's, it was a very interesting documentary in terms of um, understanding the, the mechanics that goes on um, to get a car to the grid Um uh, and yeah, I really hope that this is the, the first of many to come and we do see other teams and Liberty kind of take this on board and, and, and produce more shows. Yeah, I could very much see this as being a way forward that Liberty wants to go, especially if they are covering up and coming drivers, junior drivers on team and the drivers dramas on the team, as well as is this setup in the testing uh, that the the reality of that and the amount and the stakes being so high in formula one as they are in many professional sports uh it just it just will bring people into the fold uh, that's my opinion but we're not here to talk about appealing to the uh lowest common denominator so to speak of motorsports we are here to discuss the nuts and bolts so as we start to run slightly shorter on time how about we move on and, and discuss uh, in a little bit of detail some of the important changes that are not the aero changes that we are going to be seeing on the cars this year. And it seemed like to me in going through this, because I went through and made an exhaustive list of every place I saw purple writing on the FIA page, uh, that uh, a fair number of these seem to refer back to stuff that actually happened last season that the FIA is going to clarify now with more than just a technical directive. Yeah, I mean, essentially what we're looking at here in the redraft of the regulations is the accumulation of lots of pages of technical directives that effectively are somebody's opinion. Um, they are Charlie Whiting as the steward's opinion, um, which means that they aren't regulatory um, and they can be circumvented. Uh, only he then can have them overruled by the, the stewards of the race, etc. So what having them introduced into the regulations means is that there's no get around. And these are now part of the framework that the teams must work with. So a lot of what you've uh, highlighted, Matt, is to do with oil. 
oil burning, the processes involved in controlling oil burning um, in terms of using active valves and um, how the fluids re-enter the power unit through breathers and, you know, all of the very, very minute technical details that the teams have used because there's sort of ambiguity in the rules. So it's just a closing down situation where the FIA is shutting up shop and saying, we must now operate in this way. And these are the regulations. Yeah. And to me, what was astonishing is they literally would add, they added an entirely new, basically oil section, all about the oil tank and measurements. And interesting to me, you're not allowed to have any oil containing part more than 800 millimeters from the center line of the car. But it just seems to demonstrate how vast and important the practice was to the teams last year that they have devoted this much space in the regulations to spelling it out. Yeah, and it's because we're we're looking at an efficiency formula at the end of the day, aren't we? And what was being done with oil burning was effectively affecting the efficiency of the the power unit. So the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari who'd stolen a march, let's say, um, were able to do something with the oil burning tactics and the way in which they they used oil around the the power units itself um, to gain a a large efficiency um, gain compared to the likes of Renault and um, Honda. And so it's all about trying to close those gaps down as well. You know, they're, they're trying to make it more difficult for the leading teams to, to have such large advantages um, so that we can try to have a, a, a bit more parity um, going towards the end of this regulation set. Okay, and now I'm going to ask my own personal question. When they talk about breather fluids, what exactly are breather fluids? And in sp- and specifically what they were about, and this is in um, 5.1.12 for those of you who were playing regulation bingo at home, um, it was specifically about having them re-enter the power unit. So so what was the loophole there? What were they up to? Because I heard plenty about oil burning last year, and it, and it makes sense to me, although I did learn in, in reading the regulations that a lot of what they were up to was adding compounds to change the octane of the fuel in the combustion chamber, and that's where they were finding power, and that was interesting to me. What? Tell me about these breather fluids. What exactly are they, and how were the teams gaining uh, some some sort of incremental advantage by reusing them in the power unit? It's exactly the same process in terms of combustion. They're, they're basically reusing um, oil vapor that would ordinarily be vented um, so it's being put back through the plenum um, and added back into the system. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's just really a, a recycling of something that's already gone around the loop uh, and you're putting it back into the loop. Obviously, um, there, there are gains to be to be had there. Yes, well, that would probably be why I have an EGR valve on my car, for example. For example, yes, very, very much the same kind of scenario, yes. Okay, and now they also mentioned, and I know there was some some talk about this, uh, they're getting very specific about the engine plenum temperature, in particular the air going into it. They're going to have a sensor there, they're going to declare an official ambient temperature, and should you deviate from that temperature too much, it will be bad news for you and your team. Yeah, so this is all about charge cooling, really. Um, they're, they're looking at the, the temperature room, which is it's entering the, the, the plenum. So we're, we're looking at the, the temperature that's going around the, the cycle itself. Um, again, I think it's just a, a case of with these particular regulations, we're getting to the point where the power unit manufacturers are starting to have to try to stretch their elbows out and try to make room in certain areas and so the FIA also have to look at those areas and think well if we stop them doing this we will stop them spending money and we will stop them gaining a a large chunk or advantage over their competitors. Now that could have come about because of technical directives as well. Um, It could be a case that one of the power unit manufacturers has asked um, Charlie Whiting for clarification on how something works for them um uh, and obviously that's then gone back to the the FIA and they've taken a look at it and tried to close down that that channel of uh, performance so again it, it's it's an area that we're just trying to tighten control um keep the the spending down uh, and try to improve the 
the delta between Mercedes and Honda. Okay, and now just for me and and possibly for other viewers, uh, could you just explain the concept of charge cooling a little bit? Okay, so there's two sorts of charge cooling. Um, you have a air-to-air cooler, which basically means that in the side pod of the car, you will have what is effectively will, will look like a radiator that you have in your car. Um, but it will have air flowing through the fins externally and the, char- the charge air running through the, the actual um, cooler itself. So you're using the free stream air through the side pod to cool the, the charge air. And that's what we call an air-to-air intercooler. It's what most teams run. Now, the likes of Mercedes and the Ferrari-powered teams use a charge cooler. They use a liquid-to-air cooling system, which allows them to jacket the actual um, cooler itself. And they use uh, usually water um, inside the the tank to control the temperature of the the, the boost charge. Um, There's positives and negatives to both sorts of systems. I've run both type of systems on supercharged engines in the past, and there's there's obvious gains for different types of of uh, operating windows. But it, to me, it makes sense that you look at the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari, and they want to run the charge cooled system. Um, but obviously, that brings with it complications, and so then you end up with teams like Force India, who then run an intercooled system, and they don't have the advantages of the Mercedes system, which then has the knock-on effect that they can't run at the same operating level of the Mercedes team. And this is the kind of minutiae that people forget when they say, oh yeah, but Force India have got a Mercedes power unit. Well, yes, they do, but they don't operate it within the same parameters because they can't operate it in the same temperature parameters. So, yeah, it's an area of play between uh, the manufacturers and the the customer teams because it's an area that doesn't have to be supplied to the customer teams. Um, It can just be supplied um, without without the cooling options. Ferrari choose not to do that. All of their customers run the same charge cooling options they do. So, you know, it's horses for courses again in that respect. So again, this is a so this could be another area where uh, the regulations could have addressed it by requiring the customer teams to receive the exact same cooling solutions as the manufacturer teams, but probably they felt it was better to get rid of it altogether because then it's an area of development where money simply won't be spent by any team. Yeah, I mean, personally, I would suggest that everybody should have the same specification if they run uh, a particular manufacturer's solution. Um, but then you have the the problem of individuality. You know, you look at what Renault did with uh, Red Bull um, during the latter stages of the, the V8 era. And Red Bull were running totally different exhaust headers to everybody else that was supplied Renault units. So and, and obviously to their power unit advantage. So. I kind of personally want to see the differences, but I understand also the fact that you would want to limit those differences. And the regulations obviously don't go as far as prescribing that each of the teams now must be supplied the same solutions. They're still excluded in in the, the power unit amalgamation rules. So, you know, we still see the differences. A Williams, a Force India will still likely run an intercooler whereas mercedes will run a charge cooler but you know that that's their choice that's their option it's what they prefer to do okay so where these lines are going to be drawn then we can look forward to being the battle line between the top manufacturers and the privateer midfield teams in terms of what the particularly power unit manufacturers are required to provide in order to put everyone on a more even footing Right now, it looks like what they're going to do is just basically make the engines more and more a specification engine rather than requiring manufacturers and power unit manufacturers to develop something within their budget that they will then have to sell at a set price to all teams equally, anyone who wants it. And we're getting perilously close to having a whole nother show called What Exactly Is the DNA of Formula One? And I'm looking at our time and I'm thinking probably we could fit it in. Just kidding, Spanners. No, we can't really fit it in. So um, how about instead I ask you, um, LGH Jetma from the chat room, 
would like to know if you, if you feel that uh, more circuit testing would help the Scuderia Toro Rosso Honda team catch up in terms of their engine power, or or are the problems really going to be elsewhere? Um, okay, so I think the biggest problem that we've got with Honda is their philosophy towards the way in which that they they approach their design and their integration with the, their partner. So the biggest issue that I believe Honda have had during the McLaren era is the way in which that they have shared data with with McLaren, um, how they've integrated with McLaren in terms of giving ideas. Um, they've kind of been out there on their own and not accepting outside help. Um, I don't believe track testing is, is the way forward. Um, for for Honda, I don't think that's ultimately going to be a big saviour to them. They're, one of their issues in that respect is the fact that they only have one team. Um, but looking forward, obviously we've talked in the past about chassis dynamometers um, and the likes of Red Bull having their own, Mercedes having one, Ferrari having one, and we're talking about the AVL rig here. Um, Honda now have invested in one. And if Red Bull are going to move to Honda for the following season, well, then suddenly you have two AVL rigs in that loop. So you could imagine a time where they are able to catch up in that respect. But yeah, it's a difficult one for Honda. I do hope that this season we do see them make some leaps forward. And I do think that the end of last season kind of showed us a glimpse of hope as to the direction that they're heading towards. And I think it, it is firmly more towards the the Renault end of the spectrum. Which brings up the entirely entertaining question of if they do indeed make good with Red Bull and Red Bull go on to win a championship as is Tag Heuer Honda, what's poor Aston Martin going to be doing in 2021? Um, Smokescreen, I believe, is the word I would use for that whole scenario there, Matt. Um, I don't believe that... um, that Aston Martin have any real intention of supplying a power unit for 2021 um, other than having something rebranded for them. Um, so they may buy something in um, from Honda themselves. And that's why it might, might at this point make sense to align themselves with Honda um, through Red Bull. But 2021 is, is a, it might seem a long way away, but we have to start putting big lines in the sand shortly. And I think there's going to be a lot of communications in regard to that 2021 power unit coming up shortly in terms of keeping the manufacturers we currently have happy rather than just thinking about the possibility that somebody else might come on board because that's all it is at the moment. We're thinking that somebody might want to come into the sport, but do they? And that is the, that is the question that I, I have been asking for some time now and many others too. We will see. Uh, which side of the fence uh, Ross Braun and Liberty ultimately come down on. And I will point out that most of this complaining has been done by Red Bull and Christian Horner, and it would probably stop pretty rapidly if they were winning championship. Uh, before we go, one of, our, um, one of our chat room denizens wanted to know specifically what the advantage of charge cooling was. And to my understanding, it all just has to do with the density of the air the colder the air, the more oxygen, the more power, correct? Yeah, it, it's obviously a little more complex than that. But yeah, that's the crux of, of what we're looking at. Charge cooling versus intercooling is a, is a very different solution um, in terms of the way in which that the, the, the temperatures are operated. So um, you can obviously gain more from an intercooler over a peak in terms of if you can get the flow through the through the intercooler itself, you can gain more peak. So if you, your side pods are ultimately very efficient, then uh, an intercooler might be the way forward. And it's the cheapest solution uh, because there's less packaging to deal with, um, with with an intercooler. So that's perhaps why you see the likes of Force India and Williams running that solution. Um, whereas charge cooling won't give you the ultimate peak um, performance that perhaps an intercooler is able to attain, but it will give you uh, the, the sort of mid to low range that that you're looking for. So again, horses for courses. And obviously I'm basing my theories here on my own experiences using these. We're, we're talking about high grade F1 
here um, where um, I'm certainly not having that kind of great stuff on my road car when I've been investigating these things. So, you know, that they are understanding things to a much higher level than me. But, you know, that that's the kind of uh, detail that we're, we're looking for. It's all to do with with temperatures at the end of the day. OK. And we did have a question earlier about aerodynamics and, and the effects of aerodynamics relative to velocity. One of our listeners wrote in and wanted to know if it's always directly proportional, um, the effects of the various aerodynamic appendages, or, or whether, it was, um, whether it was disjunct depending upon velocity. Yeah, velocity obviously has a play. Um, the way that I, I've read that comment is that we're basing our assumption on the fact that we're using the same aerodynamic configuration at every single circuit. And obviously that isn't what we're looking at. Each circuit you will find the, the team is running a different configuration, even if it's just down to the, the fact of a small gurney trim on, on the rear element of the wing, for argument's sake, that would make a significant difference in terms of the performance and the downforce that can be generated. Um, but what's also to be bearing in mind here as well is that we're, we're obviously not just thinking about velocity, we're also thinking about downforce in terms of where, where do we want the downforce? We want downforce in the low to medium speed corners, for argument's sake, on a, on a low, low speed circuit. And we want it on uh, medium to high speed um, corners on a high speed circuit. So, you know, depending on where you are, what circuit you're on, you will run a different aerodynamic configuration um, to suit those particular conditions. And that will ultimately be defined by, obviously, how much peak downforce you can create by with your car um and obviously the configuration that you, you're running in the your angle that you're you're running at in certain corners etc so yeah there's not a it's not a one fit, fits all solution there, there's many different configurations that the teams run in order to to optimize their setup okay well i had taken that to to mean uh sort of more directly is there is it always a linear progression uh, with regards to downforce and with regards to vortices in terms of how fast the car is moving uh, or or does it change at certain boundaries yeah then then you you have problems with with boundary layer um, you get to a certain speed and you you have too much um, you won't be able to provide enough um, speed over the wing for argument's sake to overcome the the boundary layer that's being created so you have separation um and then that basically destroys the effectiveness of the wing so yeah you know it depends on on the design of that component as to what its ultimate vmax is um you're not going to design a wing that can do 150 mile an hour and put it on 180 mile an hour straight because it wasn't designed for, for, for that purpose. So yeah, it's, it, um, it depends on, on the scenario really, but I, I would suggest that there's, there's a tipping point at which you, you don't create downforce and then you start to make more drag. Okay. So before we uh, wrap this thing up, what say I take a quick troll for comment of the week. So here we go. Uh, Richard Reddy. I don't know who that is, says, I can literally kill the stream. And I do believe that was in reference to our entire discussion and taunting. Um, you American, I'm afraid to read this. This might, be, this, might, this might violate the family clause, so stop your ears up. But when we were discussing the Pirelli tires, he said Viagra tires. Mm, would that be the, the, the hardest compound, I would imagine? Uh, one would think so. Um, Ruraid McKay says, it's tech support time uh, in regards to our excitement at the beginning of the episode. And I, I think that's where we're going to win. Daniel Drury, it's Whitmarsh live from McLaren Technology Center Lake. Daniel Critchley, are the fish stuck in a Y2K vortex? And Artemy EX, bring in the goldfish as another guest. And I don't know about you. But I think I might have to go with, oh, it's close. I think to me it's between are the fish stuck in a Y2K vortex or live from the MTC lake. What do you think, Summers? I think we go with live from the MTC lake. All right, Daniel Drury, you are the winner of this week's Comment of the Week. Comment of the
So before we head off, Summers, tell us where we can find you. Tell us what you are up to. I'm always up to something. Um, unfortunately, I have very little time in life, um, but you can find me on the Twitters at SummersF1, which is S-O-M-E-R-S-F1. Um, you can find my work over on motorsport.com, uh, working with the legend that is Giorgio Piola. Um, and yeah, there, there's some exciting stuff coming up this season. I also have my own Patreon page these days. So you can get on board with that in terms of uh, extra content that you would get first before anybody else. Um, and, and yeah, I have a few other things that might be coming up in the pipeline for, for the 2018 season. Well, I think we're all very excited about that. And yeah, absolutely worth it in terms of the Patreon. And as for me, I'm Matt Trumpets. You can find me at MattPT55 on the Twitters. And don't forget to check out at MissedApexF1 on the Twitters, too. They occasionally tweet important things about the shows. Spanners Ready will be back next week, and I have no idea what he's going to talk about, because as far as I'm concerned, we've already talked about all of the important things. So remember, chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Trumpet's Time. It's not really the same as the headbanging, I know. But it's not bad. I prefer it. I like to think that all people with good taste prefer it, but, you know, perhaps that's because I'm playing... Anyway, oh, that was a good show. Nice yeah, work. Thanks so apart much. From the, apart from the goldfish. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, we'll we'll catch that puppy eventually. We'll 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 figure out where it came from, where it went to. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.